This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the story of Henry IV continues with Henry IV, Part 2. Open your ears, for which of you will stop the vent of hearing when loud rumor speaks? We have heard the chimes at midnight, Master Shannon. Men of all sorts take a pride to gird at me. What's he that goes there? Falstaff, I'm pleased, your lordship. He that was in question for the robbery. He, my lord. Coins his brother. Oh, why, thou globe of <laughs> sinful continents, what life dost thou lead? Well, better than thou. I'm a gentleman. Thou art a drawer. I speak to thee, my heart. I know thee not, old man. All right, as always, we're going to start off with a short summary. How short? This is Henry IV, part two, in one minute. Let's start the timer and go. All is still rotten in the state of England. After their failure at the Battle of Shrewsbury, rebels are amassing in various quarters to rise up against Henry IV. Meanwhile, in Eastcheap, the fat knight Falstaff wanders aimlessly, avoids a long arm of the law, falls in love with the prostitute, and gets into fights. Eventually, he is assigned his own troop to lead into battle against the rebels, and Falstaff conscripts an unhappy bag of unworthies. As for Prince Hal, he returns to the castle, where he reconciles with Henry IV, who is dying of some mysterious illness that may or may not be a curse for the way in which he sees the crown from King Richard. These scenes are interspersed with various scenes involving the rebels, all of which climaxes with John of Lang. Lancaster, Hal's brother, tricks the rebels into disbanding under the pretense of orchestrating peace talks. Henry IV dies, Hal is crowned Henry V, and at his coronation, Falstaff appears with his band of rogues, all expecting to be welcomed with open arms. Henry rejects Falstaff, and the fat knight leaves the stage with a broken heart. Writers always take risks when they attempt the Herculean task of telling a story over multiple installments of their chosen medium. The greatest challenge, of course, is to make each installment a successful story that can exist on its own. In television parlance, this is the standalone episode that is independent on awareness of the show's larger mythology. Now, television has been doing this for years. Hollywood has been attempting to do it for a few decades, while literature has been successfully trying it for a century or two. Theater, meanwhile, has been giving us multi-part epics since at least the ancient Greeks, when Sophocles gave us the Oedipus trilogy and Aeschylus gave us the Oresteia. It's a difficult endeavor, and Shakespeare, to his internal credit, was braver than most when he tried to tackle a multi-part epic right out of the gate. This, of course, was his early quartet of plays about the War of the Roses. As we saw there, only one, Richard III, truly succeeds. With his second quartet, however, he managed the inverse. Of the four plays that comprise the Henriad, three are magnificent. Richard II, Henry IV Part I, and Henry V. They all remain a trio of theatrical gems, rarely rivaled in the canon. Henry IV Part II, on the other hand, is the sad outlier, a messy and weak play that no theatrical producer would ever produce on its own. When it is produced, it is always done in conjunction with its predecessor, making the play the theatrical equivalent of your favorite comic book sidekick. It is something that never branches out on its own. In Henry IV Part I, Shakespeare made Hal's transformation from wayward prince to warring soldier the focus of the play. Rather than continue the story and show the final shift from soldier to king, Shakespeare turned the spotlight onto that fat-headed knight, Sir John Falstaff. Possibly Shakespeare was driven to do this by Falstaff's popularity, possibly he ran out of historical events and needed to come up with something for audiences to watch while we waited for Henry IV to die. Whatever the reason, 
he made a critical mistake. Falstaff, as we saw in Henry IV Part One, is only magnificent insofar as what he helps reveal about Hal. Some are born great, and some have greatness thrust upon them, as Shakespeare tells us in Twelfth Night, but I'd add that some are simply born to be secondary characters. If Henry IV Part II comes across as a theatrical sidekick, it's probably because a sidekick is the focus of the play. There are two plays that make Falstaff the hero, Henry IV Part II and The Merry Wives of Windsor, and both have gone down in history as misfits of art. This is owing to Falstaff himself, who is essentially a villain who desires things for his own selfish ends. Richard III and Iago are villains too, but they are competent ones, which is what gives their plays a certain amount of fire. They want evil things, and they have the intelligence to achieve them. When a character says they want to rule the world, and we as an audience can see that they actually have the power to do it, their story suddenly becomes gripping. But Falstaff, while always the most arrogant person in the room, is also one of the most incompetent. His needs are always vain and selfish. In Henry IV Part II, he wants to avoid responsibility for his crimes and inveigle himself with the king. In The Merry Wives of Windsor, he wants to sleep with two married women. No one on stage is ever fooled by his efforts, and no one in the audience ever thinks that he's ever going to succeed. The result is a pair of plays which lack tension. This is why both Henry IV Part II and The Merry Wives of Windsor remain such problematic works of art. The Merry Wives of Windsor, for reasons that will be discussed in another episode, can be easily forgotten by all those who wish to. The same cannot be said for Henry IV Part II. For one, it has an important place in the narrative of the Henriad. It is the bridge between the events of Henry IV Part I and those of Henry V. But the play also has the frustrating attribute of having just as many good points as it does bad. I won't actually spend too much time discussing the play's weaker moments. Suffice it to say that while Shakespeare continued to juxtapose scenes of the royal court with those in the taverns, the scenes in the taverns lack dramatic urgency, and they end up slowing down the narrative, even as they introduce us to a group of characters who have little impact on the play. The play is also poorly structured, with Hal, ostensibly our hero, not appearing until the middle of Act 2. There's a character called Ned Points who seems to be Hal's confidant, but he completely disappears long before the play ends, and the story lacks a central antagonist. There's a whole bunch of rebellious lords and bishops running around, and it's very easy to confuse them all, and in any case, they're all defeated, with no one ever lifting a sword. Worst of all, Falstaff and Hal only have a few moments together, which undercuts the impact of the play's final scene when the new king rejects his old companion. Now these failings are why the play does not work as its own theatrical entity, and yet the play still has a few strong points, especially when it's considered entirely as a companion piece to Henry IV Part I and Henry V. Henry IV Part I, as we learned in the last episode, is a play about fathers and sons, and Henry IV Part II attempts to move it in the same direction. Shakespeare continues to juxtapose Hal's two father figures, as both Falstaff and Henry IV reckon with old age and obsolescence. Falstaff, aware of his age and perhaps sensing that he is in the process of losing Hal, bemoans to Judge Shallow that, quote, we have heard the chimes of midnight, end quote. He also confesses his fears to Dal Tearsheet, the prostitute who he loves. Just give me flattering buses. By my troth, I kiss thee with a most constant heart. Oh, I'm old. I'm old. I love thee better. Henry IV, meanwhile, is also aware that time is not his friend. 
The real Henry IV suffered from some sort of disease that has been debated for centuries, with historians suggesting everything from strokes that affected his mental state to some sort of skin disease that his contemporaries called leprosy. From Shakespeare's standpoint, the nature of the illness isn't half as important as its symbolism. The manner in which Henry took the crown remains a running theme in the Henriad, and his illness can easily be seen as a punishment for his actions. Henry himself seems aware of this. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, says Henry, as he wanders the halls of the castle plagued by insomnia. Not long after, he brings up the day that Richard II resigned and warned Henry of the animosity that was to come. But which of you was by when Richard, with his eye brimful of tears, then checked and rated by Northumberland, did speak these words? Now proved a prophecy, Northumberland, thou ladder by the which my cousin Bolingbroke ascends my throne. Though then, God knows I had no such intent, but that necessity so bowed the state that I and greatness were compelled to kiss. The time shall come, thus did he follow it, the time will come that foul sin, gathering head, shall break into corruption. So went on, foretelling this same time's condition and the division of our amity. Henry will continue to muse on the way he has been cursed for his actions and seems to know that he has reached his final days. This leads us into an electric scene when Hal finally comes to see his father at his deathbed. Thinking that Henry has already died, Hal is finally forced to confront the thing he has been avoiding since Henry IV Part I began, the crown. But Henry is not yet dead, and Shakespeare allows him the pleasure of seeing his son accept his legacy. This leads to a long reconciliation scene in which father and son finally admit their love for one another just before Henry is taken away to die. Now Hotspur, who died at the end of Henry IV Part I, never gets such a final moment with his own father, which is just one of the ways Shakespeare continues to juxtapose Hotspur and Hal. It's also a way that he uses the narrative to punish the rebels for betraying their king. When Henry IV Part II opens, Northumberland, Hotspur's father, is waiting to hear the results from the Battle of Shrewsbury. Here's what he, and we the audience, hear when the play begins. Noble Earl, I bring you certain news from Shrewsbury. Good and God will. As good as heart can wish. The king is almost wounded to the death, and in the fortune of my lord, your son, Prince Harry, slain. From a theatrical standpoint, this is a grand beginning as it subverts the audience's expectations. It asserts a history contrary to the one we know, and so it immediately grabs our attention. Of course, the Lord is just repeating rumors. He'll know the truth soon enough, and so Northumberland will have to face the truth. Because he didn't send his troops in time, his son, his favored son, died at Shrewsbury. Hotspur is dead, and now his father is ready for vengeance. Northumberland is so convinced of his need to avenge Hotspur's death that he almost ignores the pleas of Hotspur's widow. Now, in Henry IV Part I, Kate Percy's passion for her husband was something which helped set Hotspur apart from Prince Hal. Hotspur had a woman who loved him, Hal did not. Now, that passion causes her to both eulogize her husband and blame her father-in-law for his death in the same fantastic speech. Oh, yet for God's sake, go not through these walls! The time was, Father, that you broke your word, when you were more endeared to it than now, when your own Percy, when my heart's dear Harry 
Through many a northward look to see his father bring up his powers, but he did long in vain. Who then persuaded you to stay at home? There were two honours lost, yours and your son. For yours, may the God of heaven brighten. For his, it stuck upon him as the sun in the grey vault of heaven, and by his light did all the chivalry of England move to do brave acts. He was indeed the glass wherein the noble youth did dress themselves. He had no legs that practice not his gait, and speaking thick, which nature made his blemish, became the accents of the valiant. For those that could speak low and tardily would turn their own perfections to abuse to seem like him. So that in speech, in gait, in diet, in affections of delight, in military rules, humours of blood, he was the mark and glass, copy and book that fashioned others. And him, a oh, wondrous him, a oh, miracle of men, him did you leave? And so we have Northumberland feeling guilty over his son's death. We have a widow blaming the father-in-law for his crime. It's a shame that Shakespeare didn't give more stage time to this dynamic, for it would have been a grand one to explore. Hotspur, who was such a fantastic antagonist in the first play, could have been replaced by his wife in the second. But that wasn't what Shakespeare decided, and in any case, Lady Percy's cruelty to her own father figure anticipates Hal's eventual cruelty to Falstaff when the play ends. Now this end of the play gets a lot of attention from critics, mostly because it's a very emotional scene when played properly. But I believe that the scene, as Shakespeare wrote it, isn't actually as effective as Shakespeare wanted it to be, primarily since Hal and Falstaff have hardly seen each other throughout the entire play. Now many theatrical practitioners have corrected this defect with a fair amount of judicious editing, which makes the scene every bit as emotional as everyone wants it to be. Have you your wits? No, you are, did you say? My king! My Joe! I speak to thee, my heart! I know thee not, old man. Fall to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I have long dreamed of such a kind of man. So surfeit swelled, so old, and so profane. But being awaked, I do despise my dream. And so Hal reunites with one father, even as he discards another. In the play's epilogue, we are promised a reunion with Falstaff and Henry V, but that never transpires. Perhaps Shakespeare, clever artist that he was, understood that he had erred by giving so much stage time to that fat knight in Henry IV Part II. But there's always something poetic about Falstaff, who always craved the attention, not even getting a death scene for an audience to see. Rejected by Hal, he is cast so far into the shadows that even his last moments will happen offstage. Meanwhile, Hal who is now fully transformed into Henry V, takes on the full weight of the crown, and as we shall see, all the responsibilities that come with it. All in all, Henry IV Part II is not a good play on its own, however, it should always be viewed by anyone who wants to watch the Henriad and get the entire complete story that Shakespeare intended. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. Given the popularity of the plays that surround Henry IV Part II, it's not surprising that there are plenty of options for those wishing to give the play a glance. Most of these options involve a great amount of editing, since so much of Henry IV Part II can feel extraneous. 
If you want an unedited version of the play, your only choice is the 1979 version with David Gwillem and Anthony Quayle. This is part of the BBC television Shakespeare series, and the production does its best with what it's given, which means that it's a very solid production of a very uneven play. Although I don't usually approve of edited versions of Shakespeare, it's hard to protest anyone editing Henry IV Part II, especially when the three plays that surround it are so extraordinary. Truncated versions can be found among the usual suspects, meaning that you can watch them in An Age of Kings, the 1960 miniseries from the BBC, and The Hollow Crown, the 2012 version with Tom Hiddleston and Simon Russell Beale. Those versions are great if you're interested in viewing the Henriad in its entirety. But for those interested in only Henry IV, or more specifically, only in Falstaff, then you should turn your attention to Chimes at Midnight, Orson Welles' 1965 film, which retells the Henriad entirely from Falstaff's perspective. That villainous, abominable misleader of youth! Sweet Jack Falstaff, kind Jack Falstaff. Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff! Incorporating text from the entire Henriad, as well as the Merry Wives of Windsor, the film features Wells as the fat knight, who is more or less the perfect choice. Falstaff is a fallen idol, and Wells, by 1965, was much the same. No longer the lean and handsome man of his Citizen Kane days, Orson Wells had become every bit the behemoth that we imagined Falstaff to be. He was also living in the twilight of his career, which no doubt is what gave his interpretation of Falstaff such pathos. Given that Wells, like so many Bartolators, believed Falstaff was the greatest character Shakespeare ever created, he spends a lot of time with the text of Henry IV Part II. Since other adaptations, like The Hollow Crown, are interested in telling Hal's story, they tend to cut Falstaff's extraneous bits. Wells did things the other way around, giving Falstaff an eternal place in the spotlight. So if you're part of that multitude who really love The Fat Knight, then this is the movie for you. The film has achieved something of a cult following over the years, and finally was released as part of the Criterion Collection in 2016, which means it's now widely available. It's also available to be seen on Filmstruck, the new streaming service from Criterion, and Turner Classic Movies. I'll leave links to everything, as always, on the show page. Well, that's it for Henry IV Part Two. Next up, we take one last look at Sir John Falstaff with the only one of Shakespeare's comedies to be set in merry old England. It's The Merry Wise of Windsor. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. For more information, please visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare on Bard. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the other things I do with my time? You can get information on how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, published by St. Martin's Press. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who spend a great deal of time trying to survive in a world too small to contain them. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. 16 plays down, 22 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it.